it's always a privilege to share God's word. Um, it's a privilege to be here with you to do so again. And, and um, on Saturday, uh, I began by indicating that uh, I'm not a controversialist. And the reason why I was saying that is to say that um, I don't go around trying to find fights to pick just to because I have nothing else better to do. Trust me, I have other things better to do. I think in our internet society, um, we have a lot of uh, occasions where people just pick fights and uh, are happy to fight theological fights for no other purpose than to be engaged in a fight. This is why I mentioned Jude in the context of that um, on Saturday. Jude was not picking a fight to pick a fight. He was about to write on the subject of our common salvation. That's what he was going to do, but he had to address error for the sake of Christ's church. And I would say to you that no matter how large or small the error is, we have a duty and responsibility on behalf of Christ to address error when needed, but not doing so as controversialists. In fact, our hope and prayer is is that those who hear any critique, that they would be drawn to the scriptures and maybe rethink their views if they are in error. I should also note that I invited Grudem to correct me on what I wrote. I've never heard from him, and I don't know what that even means. I don't even know if he received my communications or not. But um, I know he has responded to some, but I've not really seen much change in what he has written, and and yet his influence continues to spread. Another thing I might add, since we're talking about labels, is that I sometimes tell people, amidst the debate and discussion of continuationism and cessationism, I sometimes tell people that I am a concessionist. And normally I get uh, uh, a confused look when I say that, but I'll say a word like that so as to help people to understand that the cessationist position is not saying that the Spirit of God has stopped working. Um, In fact, I like the way uh, Sam Waldron puts it. He says that the gift of prophecy continues in the modern day, and then he'll pick up his Bible and say, here it is. Uh, It's not in flesh and blood, but we have the prophetic ministry, the apostolic and prophetic ministry here in the written word. And it is not any less authoritative or powerful. I think this is the key thing. The word of God is, as we have been saying, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. There's not a greater weapon that we have in proclaiming Christ to men. Another thing that we covered in terms of preliminary considerations, is the ubiquitous nature of this teaching of fallible prophecy. I mentioned one of the endorsements on Grudem's own systematic theology by Greg Allison, and he referred to the resurgence that we find in Reformed theology, and he says that at the heart of this resurgence of Reformed theology, the heart of this renaissance, he says, is the textbook that he was endorsing, the the Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. He says, read by over 750,000 students, pastors, Christian leaders, and lay people in churches. I think uh, Dr. Masters is correct to observe that it's likely far more than that now, now that that Systematic Theology has been out for some time. Um, The second one, um, it's perhaps well beyond 750,000. I don't know what the number is, but it is a ubiquitous work. That's the point. And just as I mentioned before that uh, on Saturday, that just as fallible prophecy is a bit of an oxymoron, so is reformed, a reformed charismatic, because we don't see the charismatic movement in the Reformation. Um, So there are many things to address. Um, 
The particular subject, though, obviously, that we're focusing on amidst all the discussions about sign gifts and continuationism, the main thing that I chose to address is the subject of prophecy. And that's not to say that those other discussions about tongues and healing are are somehow unimportant. I'm not suggesting that. But I do believe that what we believe about prophecy, what it is and what it isn't, is deeply impactful because it really gets into the heart of the question of the basis of the authority that we have as preachers and the basis of the authority that the church has. And it also gets into the heart of the question of the nature of God himself. Is God really commissioning people to go out and say things that are mostly in error? And some things may be true and God's sheep have to go through and sort through and try to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Is that really something that is from God. According to Grudem, we're supposed to look at that as being a sign of the hand of God's blessing on the church. What I'd like to do here together with you um, this afternoon is to do um, th- uh, go through four things. First of all, I'd like to review a little bit from Saturday and talk about the danger of fallible prophecy. I'd like to think a little bit more about the implications of what we talked about on Saturday. That'll be our first matter of consideration. Then I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the implications of the practical realities of fallible prophecy. In other words, what does this look like in the local church? If you have people who are claiming to be fallible prophets, by the way, they they would never call themselves fallible prophets. I, I doubt that. If they did, I'd have to give them some credit for doing that, but uh, they'll likely say, well, I'm a prophet of God. But we need to think about what that would actually look like in in the local church. And we have some some indications of what that does look like. A third thing that I'd like to talk about, and I'm going to give you an invented term, I'd like to talk about the dangers and the disease of celebritism. I believe that, and that is a, Uh, not a real word, but celebritism, I use that to speak of the dangers of celebrity, the idea of having evangelical celebrities who really end up becoming somewhat protected from criticism. And by the way, that's a danger for any one of us. If any one of you started to become rather prominent and you somehow imagine that your prominence makes you immune to criticism, that's a dangerous thing. It's a danger for anybody. And fourthly and finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about the manner in which fallible prophecy actually denigrates our understanding of God's prophetic word, and it denigrates God's own reputation. When people go about and claim that what they're doing is from God, and it is nothing but a counterfeit, they're denigrating God's reputation and the gospel itself. So first of all, just to review some of what we considered on Saturday, remember that Grudem says this when talking about fallible prophecy. He says, in practical terms, with fallible prophecies, the instructions that are given should not be considered divine obligations. It should not be considered divine obligations. So, He's admitting there's really no authority here. And remember, he goes on to talk about the the fact that the fallible prophet is fairly accurate, not infallible, is without absolute certainty, and is worthy of disobedience because of the fact that they are speaking to some degree with error. I really, once you think about it, I don't really know who would stand in line for that, but this is what you have. This is exactly what Grudem is presenting. And in order to justify this imagined gift, this imagined blessing from God to the church, Grudem goes to Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament and uses and employs the 
remote section dealing with profane Greek uses, and not just the profane Greek uses, but he calls, uh, Kramer calls it the broader use of the word prophetes. So it's really the, the more remote uses of the term. Grudem, in a sense, admits this at the beginning of his quotation of Kramer. He says, many writings outside the Bible and, uh, are, use the word prophet without signifying any divine authority. So as soon as he says, outside the Bible, this is really, it should be an indicator to people that we're violating a very important principle of reasoning from the scriptures. The Bible says a lot about prophecy. Why in the world would you go running to the world to understand that very reserved and important term? And so in quoting Kramer, he indicates that the word prophet is really kind of a a very general concept of an individual who is a philosopher or a teacher or an Epicurean philosopher, as it was used in that way. A specialist in botany could be called a prophet. Even a quack, a person who feigns medical knowledge, a, a charlatan. So he's telling us that the New Testament writers would have been thinking about all those concepts when using the word prophetes. What I didn't include in the book that I had the privilege of writing a number of years ago, what I didn't include then and didn't notice because I was chasing so many rabbit holes and dealing with this matter, um, is that Grudem selects out of one particular section out of Kramer's article, he selects the fourth section out of five separate sections that Kramer refers to a section that deals in philosophy and science from Plato. Now, in Grudem's systematic theology, he doesn't tell you anything like this. There's nothing in the footnotes that indicates that this is the source material that he's using. All that he does is he says, well, this is the way the word that would have been used in the first century, and this is what Kramer says about how it was used, and then you get a footnote and you get a page number, and the reader reading that would never have any sense of the fact that he was dipping from a polluted well in order to define prophecy. He tailors the citation from Kramer without giving any indication that it is a tailored citation. He leaves out Kramer's mention of the fact that this same use that Rudem is referring to would also include the idea of prophesying demons and gods and that the prophet occupied a mediatorial role. He is the mouthpiece of the God, and he is also man's spokesman to the God. Now, all those things Grudem left out, pointing to the fact that he was truly selectively quoting from Kramer. The things he left out, if he had included that in his systematic theology, even a very young student of the Bible would look at that and think, what is this? If you want to be consistent, you want to incorporate Kramer's definition here, then you're now incorporating from the pagan world the idea of a Roman pontifex. Pontifex meaning bridge, and so the prophet was seen as a bridge from God to man, man to God. So it's remarkable when you think about it. In, in, the, in the view of the Roman pontifex, you had to have this Pontifex, in order to have access to the gods, they even had a special book. When you have almost 200 deities and demons that you're interacting with, you have to have a catalog to figure out which god you're praying to. And so the Pontifex would have this book in order to identify which god they were going to pray for. One historian said, you know, be sure not to pray to Bacchus, the god of wine, for water. But this idea of the Roman pontifex as a secular concept would later be adopted in the Roman Catholic Church in reference to the Pope. We don't want any of this. The idea of incorporating a fundamental definition for such a fundamental word like prophecy, modifying it, changing it, is deeply dangerous. So 
So we talked about the corrupted foundation of Grudem's argumentation in this and looked at the lexical analysis that he presented. We also looked at the case of Agabus, and Agabus is central because Agabus is the claimed prophet for the fallible prophecy movement. And so we painstakingly went through the supposed two errors that Agabus had in his prophecy. And if you didn't have the chance to be at at those lectures, I would encourage you to um, watch those because I won't be able to go through, obviously, all the material here now. And and let me say this, parenthetically, um, I I counted a blessing to preach God's word, and I love doing that. What I don't like is exegeting another man's problematic view about the Bible. That's a totally different thing. It, it, it's good for headaches, but it's uh, not good for personal edification. But I think it has to be done. We have to think about the details of what we're talking about. So we went through those details. We followed Grudem in his argument, uh, painstakingly going through his complaint about the idea of Paul not actually being bound by the Jews, the fact that the Jews didn't voluntarily deliver Paul over to the Gentiles. And so we went through those, those examples, we went through those details, and really didn't find anything to justify the complaint that Agabus was in error. But backing up, I, one of the points that we made then um, on Saturday is this, is that it's rather remarkable that if Agabus really was in error, how did church history, 2,000 years of church history, miss this? I mean, that, that would really be an interesting thing to survey. Uh, maybe there's somebody out there who was complaining about Agabus, but really this is not a mainstream thing. And this is why, this is why I agree with Dr. Robert Thomas, who said, that he, Grudem, is accusing not only Agabus of error, Grudem is making the same accusation against the Holy Spirit. You know, Grudem makes quite an argument. Uh, He takes quite a bit of time talking about the fact that, and and Piper does too, um, about not despising prophecy. Well, their complaints against Agabus are really an, an expression of despising prophecy. By Grudem's own standard, no one who makes a mistake on a prophecy should face the corrective measures of church discipline. It should be evident that the advocates of fallible prophecy have enshrined error within their concept of of biblical prophecy and that such error should never be seen as evidence of an individual being a false prophet. By this standard of his, the scriptural tests for error become buried in the ash heap of the contrivance of fallible prophecy. The danger of operating by one's own subjective impressions is not at all new. The church has had to battle with this matter for centuries. Another thing that we covered, and and it really was too brief, but go back and read through Deuteronomy 13 when you have a chance and look at that text and look at how it is that God calls his people to find out, to detect, find out, and deal with false prophets. And I call this a test of love because God calls his people to deal with those who claim to represent him or claim to have words of the Lord and yet are proven to be false prophets The Lord says in Deuteronomy 13 and verse 3, he says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, tolerance of the false prophet is evidence of not loving God in his word. Tolerating error is not an expression of love. It never has been and never will be. We talked about the correctives that Paul gave to the Corinthian church and the juxtaposition of the 
presentation of love in chapter 13, and that is right in the middle of his rebukes against the church regarding their abuse of the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 and 14. Again, the tests of love are still there in the New Testament. Let's think further about what this means as we think about the danger of fallible prophecy. Grudem says this. He says, another great benefit of prophecy is that it provides opportunity for for participation by everyone in the congregation, not just those who are skilled speakers or who have gifts of teaching. Paul says that he wants all the Corinthians to prophesy. Which is interesting because in chapter 12 he said, not all are prophets, right? You know, you read a sentence like that and you think to yourself, let's go back and read the context of that. He's not saying that. Grudem argues from this verse that others with the gift of of New Testament prophecy was and is extremely common, making it distinguishable from the authoritative prophecy found in the Old Testament. By the way, one of the ways in which he argues for this notion of the idea that, that nearly everybody could prophesy, can prophesy in the manner of a fallible prophet is because in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, he uses the ESV, which says this, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Why the ESV translated the word thelo as want is beyond me. The NASB and most other, I think of every other translation, I'd have to go back and double check, but NASB has, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. You know, if I said to my kids, you know, I, I wish you guys would just clean up the living room. They probably would sit there and think to themselves, okay, but what do you want us to do? Because at that point, I'm just kind of giving a kind of a hypothetical musing. It'd be nice if that happened. If I tell them, I want you to do that, I'm being much more direct and indicative about they're doing something. There's a difference between saying I want and I wish. And by the way, uh, the reason why that's so is um, when Paul uses that same word thelo and says I wish that all men were even as I, he's not saying everybody has to be single. And we know that. It'd be kind of a crazy thing and strange thing to say, oh, everybody has to be single. So this is really an abuse, again, of another single word in order to conform to the standards and teachings of fallible prophecy. Grudem insists that Thalo ought to be translated as one and repeatedly asserts that Paul wanted all the Corinthians to speak in tongues and even more so to prophesy. Mark this. This promotes grave corruption in the church. In Jeremiah 14, 14, it says, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name, the Lord says. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They're prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. When you tell everybody that, you know, everybody can have the the gift of prophecy and you can all go about and share your thoughts from your minds that you believe that God has, has given to you, what you're doing is, is you're putting Jeremiah 14, 14 on steroids and you're, you're making this something that's just going to grow like a disease in the church. Grudem even says this, 
He says, if Paul was eager for the gift of prophecy to function at Corinth, troubled as the church was by immaturity, selfishness, divisions, and other problems, then should we not also actively seek this valuable gift in our congregation today? Might a greater openness to the gift of prophecy perhaps help to correct a dangerous imbalance in church life, an imbalance that comes because we are too excessively intellectual, objective, and narrowly doctrinal? So he's basically saying immaturity, selfishness, divisions, those issues, um, that's not going to be a barrier for the pursuit of fallible prophecy. Corinth was plagued with these things. Paul was saying, let everybody prophesy. You're immature, that's okay. You're selfish, it's okay, you can be a prophet. We don't want to be too restrictive, is his idea. And he also says this, listen carefully. Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14, 5. He gives no warning that they should be beware of demonic counterfeit or even think that this would be a possibility when they use this gift. Now that is an amazing, that is a stunning statement. Don't worry about demonic counterfeits. That's, that's not going to happen. But what does the Apostle Paul then end up writing, saying to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? He talks about the, the reality of the fact that they let in false apostles, individuals, messengers from Satan who disguise themselves as angel and angel of light. It is in, impossible to reconcile what Grudem is saying with the warnings and teachings of the Apostle Paul. So let's consider some practical realities of all this. What does this look like? We can talk about the, the arguments themselves and the scriptural texts that refute the arguments, and th th this is fundamental, this is important, but I do want to talk about what this looks like. And so we will go to the example of John Piper. I do list this in the book. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm going to read this entire text. I don't know how else to go through this. But uh, this is an interview in which John Piper was asked about his own personal experience with fallible prophecy. And consider the remarkable influence that Piper has and the fact that this is, this is him modeling for us how to think about fallible prophecy and how to interact with it. He was being inter interviewed by David Mathis, who said this, for a non-preacher who has an impression, they think from God to help somebody, consolation, encouragement for them, any counsel for how to go about communicating that. John Piper. When I was trying to help our people with these things years ago and teach them to be open to the spirit and pursuing the spirit, not just cautiously open, you know, like some people say, but the Bible says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And so I'm encouraging our people to seek the spiritual gifts so that we can minister graces to each other, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. Those in the gifts, you know, the gift of faith and the gift of miracles and the gift of healing and the gift of tongues and the gift of teaching and interpretation and all those things. Go ahead, ask the Lord for those things don't make him give you anything, but just ask him. Well, a woman came to me while my wife is pregnant with my fourth child, and she says, I have a very hard prophecy for you. I said, okay. She said, in fact, she wrote it down and gave it to me. Your wife is going to die in childbirth, and you're going to have a daughter. I went back to my study. I thanked her. I said, I, I appreciate that. I forgot what I said, but it wasn't, it didn't, I didn't want to hear this prophecy. I went back to my study. I got down and I just wept. I said, Lord, I have been trying to help these people take, these, take this gift seriously, and I don't know what to do with this. This is, I cannot imagine why this would be helpful. 
It doesn't feel like it's you, Lord, and yet I don't want to discourage people. So I kept it totally to myself. I didn't tell Noel, my wife, about it. And when we delivered our fourth boy, not a girl, I gave a whoop, which I always do, but this whoop was a little extra because I knew as soon as the boy was born, this was not a true prophecy. And Noel is still alive, and Barnabas is, what, 27 years old today. But that's the sort of thing that makes you despise prophecy. You just say, I don't want anything to do with that kind of stuff, and I don't blame people for feeling that way. But the Bible says don't despise them. Be careful and discerning. And so my answer to your question is, listen to this. If you sense something you have for somebody... Offer it to them as a gift. Don't throw, thrust it at them as a demand. Say, I sense. I would use words like, I sense that God wants me to say to you. Offer gifts to people. These are spiritual gifts. These are not spiritual hammers. And so offer it to them and say, I just, uh, just test it. And if it seems to help, wonderful. You know, we can understand responding to the safe delivery of a child and the safety of the mother. I can understand the joy and comfort that came to his heart in that, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But what should a person think or say about the presence of false prophecy? And Piper admits this was a false prophecy. It's almost as if that became an irrelevant thing in the face of the relief of the safety of his wife and child. And so we should wonder how he could have known that this was, in fact, a false prophecy from the beginning. He learned it afterwards, but how could he have known from beforehand, before the delivery of the child? As he said, I cannot imagine why this would be helpful. It doesn't feel like it's from you, Lord. Is that really the way we test things? It doesn't feel right. You see the affective, subjective foundation that is really behind all of this. Apart from any scriptural test, is the criterion for testing a fallible prophecy to to be reduced to the subjective question of one's own feelings? Well, in the world of fallible prophecy, that really is what you end up with. One of the reasons why I I go through this is because I think this example that Piper is giving us is actually helpful for us to distill and understand what we're talking about. The question I have is, based upon Piper's own counsel, would his encounter with the unnamed woman have been improved at all had she prefaced her prophecy, her hard prophecy, with the words, I sense that God wants me to say this to you concluding her utterance by saying, I offer this as a gift. Does that make it better? In Piper's cited example, no single aspect of this woman's prophecy was valid, except for the mention of pregnancy, which would have been evident to anybody standing around. Piper correctly calls the prophecy false. However, we hear nothing in his testimony about the scripturally requisite tests being applied to the situation. There's nothing said about the fact that, oh, we have a, we have a false prophet. Maybe we should do something about that. Maybe there was follow-up provided to the situation, but you'll notice that in this interview, it's just not even a relevant point. So one must wonder if this woman is still in the church today practicing her supposed gift, thereby binding the consciences of others with her falsely claimed prophecies, or has she moved on to other churches unabatedly spreading her influence to others? And that, I think, is the more fundamental question. You know, it's remarkable, isn't it, that 
Most people in the world know and understand that spiritists and seers are hucksters and charlatans. But many in the professing church apparently don't see that or understand that now. Here's a third point of analysis. Fallible prophecy and the disease of celebritism. It is my conviction that the modern church has become dangerously distracted from her high calling to adore and reverence Christ alone. What has tempted and lured her from this precious priority is that forbidden fruit whereby the homage that is due to the creator is instead directed towards the creature. And this is what I mean when I talk about celebritism. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the work of God's grace in the life of a servant of God, where we praise not the servant, but we praise the God who uses the servant. But what we have in the modern day is celebritism, where the servant is the one who is exalted and put on a platform and a stage where they're beyond criticism. Celebritism can come in a few different forms, either by adoring the creature, exalting them, or by fearing the individual so that we, instead of fearing God, we fear the creature and give them a deference that they do not deserve. Either way, it's exalting the creature above the creator. It's the same problem, it's just a different form of it. You know, there was a conference, I think it was in 2012, dealing with the subject of racism. It was a conference in which um, featured John Piper, Tim Keller, and I'm forgetting the third individual, and I'm so sorry for that. I don't know if you saw it or heard about it, but uh, Tim Keller took about 40 minutes to tell us about white guilt. By the way, is this something that you men are facing, the social justice movement and the preaching of white guilt? And I, I'm, as I'm talking to people, I'm, I'm finding that uh, you have that in the UK. We're, we're really getting it in large volumes in the US. But I remember listening to that and I thought to myself, really? He went through various examples in order to prove his point, one of which was the federal headship of Adam to argue that white people share the guilt of our predecessors on the basis of the federal headship of Adam. You just have to go back and watch this thing. Um, it's, it's a nightmare of an argument. Um, if you're going to use the federal headship of Adam to impute guilt to, I mean, now we're all guilty of each other's sins. I, I don't even know how you use the singular event of the fall of Adam in the way that he did, but he tried it. What's amazing to me is, is that it was the silence that I heard after he said all these things, not only in that moment, but I don't remember hearing a single evangelical leader rebuke this and refute this. And since that time, we have had doors opening in the church to receive this social justice ideology, and it is becoming a, a great pollution in the church. And honestly, the celebrity of Tim Keller, I believe, protected him and insulated him from any kind of criticism and critique. And I think that that same problem has helped to protect and facilitate fallible prophecy. A long time ago, I spoke to a young man who was just beginning in the pastoral ministry, and he rather excitedly was coming to me and asking me for help and counsel, and he was thrilled to mention that Mark Driscoll was um, a man that he just wanted to emulate his ministry after, and he asked me my thoughts and impressions about Mark Driscoll, and I, I felt like a killjoy. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to slam the young man. I didn't want to crush him, but I, I had a responsibility to say some things gently to him lovingly to say, I, I think you need to think about some things. So I did, and he was incredulous that I would even dare criticize Mark Driscoll. 
but you follow the trail of Driscoll, and it's a remarkable thing. In 20, 2011, a video surfaced where Driscoll claimed to have prophetic visions, and he directly counseled others accordingly. Can't repeat the content of that video, um, some of it just by way of language warning. But uh, Warren Throckmorton, uh, writing for Pathios, summarized Driscoll's prophetic claims as follows. He says this, Quote, in the video in 2011, Driscoll says he tells people that they have been abused. The people may have no memory of such an event, but Driscoll says he can see it happening. Furthermore, he says that at times he sees the sins, specifically sins involving sex and aggression, of his congregation and others who cross his path. In this clip and elsewhere, Driscoll doesn't claim to always be correct, but is clear about his belief that his visions are from God and therefore true. He said he sees the actual acts of others as if it's on a screen in front of him that others can't see. We talked about this on Saturday, but it's a remarkable thing. We have the word of God which gives us real nourishment and nutrition and edification and a building, and to get these prophecies it takes people away from the surety and the comfort of the word and now they're worrying about events in the past that they can't even remember it's remarkable and as you probably are aware over time there were accusations against driscoll about plagiarism accusations mounted uh, against him regarding his personal integrity and his conduct in his church, and he ended up resigning in the fall of 2014. What was stunning about all of that is that it took so many scandals in his life for his followers to let go of him. By the way, not all of his followers have let go of him. He's still pastoring somewhere. I can't remember. It makes me think that evangelical celebrities are like cats, They've got nine lives, and it it takes a lot of scandal and iniquity for them to finally be exposed for what they are, and that's not a good thing. I'm not a fan of gratuitous criticism. Like I said, that's why I said I'm not a controversialist. But where there are real issues, we should never be afraid to confront others in love, and we've got to be truthful. We can't do that, whether out of fear or fawning devotion, then that's a problem. Finally, I wanted to offer a few words about what fallible prophecy does with respect to the denigration of God's prophetic word and even the denigration of God's own reputation. I mentioned... Uh, it was Saturday, I mentioned the fact that as an unbeliever, I went to a tearing meeting and uh, everybody was standing around and like soldiers in, in formation and everybody was standing silently and all of a sudden there was this racket and noise going on and everybody was just babbling and it was no distinguishable speech, nothing discernible. Standing there in fear, I didn't know what to do and then finally somebody just came up to me and said, well, you know what? Just start imitating what you're hearing. Just start making sounds. It's okay. He first told me to let the spirit lead, and then he just resorted to, well, just be a copycat. As an unbeliever, I thought to myself, well, if this is Christianity, I'll have nothing to do with it. When the Lord saved me, he showed me that that had nothing to do with Christianity. I would say to you that Piper's example that I just mentioned raises questions about what it takes for a fallible prophet to merit the correct identity of a false prophet. How much more error or presumption is needed in order for a church to recognize that such claims to prophecy are indeed false? If the Lord is truly testing his people in view of the prescribed tests of prophecy, then how does the infusion of fallible prophecy, along with its enshrined error, 
aid in such a process? And in what sense does any of this communicate the supremacy of the new covenant over that of the old? With fallible prophecy, error is a protected reality within the supposed gift. Because of this, the historic meaning of prophecy is utterly turned on its head, while prophetic errorists freely wander about in the church. They have enshrined error in the concept of prophecy. How does any of that have anything to do with God? By the way, men, you know this principle, but when you get in the pulpit, you know and understand that it is your duty and responsibility to preach the word and nothing else. So this is why I liken the role of a pastor to that of the doorkeeper that Jesus mentions in John chapter 10. What does a doorkeeper do? He looks for the shepherd, sees the shepherd. Second thing he does, he opens the door. Third thing he does, it's not stated in the text, but it's kind of obvious. If you open a door, what do you do? Do you stand there and just stand in the way? Block it. I know you'd like to come in, but I'm going to stand here. No, you get out of the way. You step aside, and in this case, so that the shepherd can be joined to the sheep. I see that as a role of the shepherd, really, or the pastor. That's the pastor, a doorkeeper. You open the door for Jesus so that Jesus can be joined to his sheep, but the process that we are, are commanded to be involved in is getting out of the way so that nothing but God's word is presented to the people and so that we're not injecting and infusing our own ideas and ideologies into the text. Grudem goes to secular sources. You go to the Bible, and how many categories of prophecy do you have? Prophetes, pseudo-prophetes. That's it. Prophecy and false prophecy. Prophets and false prophets. And so we mentioned the fact that those who in the Old Testament claimed to be a prophet and were proven to be false they were executed for their blasphemy. We're not called to execute errorists, but my goodness, when did we get the command to tolerate them? It's not to be found in Scripture. At one point in time were we instructed to just say, well, just let them, let them do what they're doing. In fact, just encourage it and let everybody in the church do it, even though they may be immature and selfish. You know what this is doing is this is provoking the anger of God. Jeremiah 23 and verse 20 says, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Oh, they're claiming to be my, my prophets. They're not. And this brings forth the anger of God. Ultimately, pastors have the highest burden and responsibility to lead by way of example in order to encourage others to pursue the priority of sola scriptura in the church over and above the dreams and invented imaginations of men. However, pastors who were slavishly beholden to other men, institutions of renown, or even their own popularity and acclaim, can be certain that they will foster more of the same among those who follow their example. Such a pastor as this will eventually prove himself to be a hireling in one form or another, it is every pastor's responsibility to uphold the banner of solus Christus and solus scriptura within the church so that Christ would have preeminence over all. And I'll just conclude with this image of founded Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. 
forgive me for asking this. How much do you guys, you men, use, read, employ Pilgrim's Progress in your churches? Do you do, you do it a little bit? Some? A lot? Um, I'm a bit of a Bunyan fan. That's why I ask. But I think of that moment when Christian is brought to a portrait of one who is described in the following way. This individual was a very grave or serious person. Having eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips. The world was behind his back. He stood as if pleading with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. I tend to think that he's describing a pastor here. He could be talking about a, a very serious believer as well. I, I, what all believers are called to be is we're called to be serious about this. This is not a game. But I think especially as pastors, this idea of remembering that we're holding the best of books in our hand. And the world and its secular ideas and definitions and connotations, it must be behind our back. Such a portrait of, as this is one of an individual who fixes his eyes on Jesus, clings to Scripture, and because of this, he has no desire to trifle with those provisions which God himself has not given. Men, may we be faithful to be like that. That's our calling. Open the door, get out of the way, so that Jesus would be joined to his sheep.